kind of focus in on the season that we're about to go into and, and just to kind of think about that from a biblical framework. And I thought I would start with a little bit of history to help us there. Um, and so hopefully you will learn a little bit of church history while I'm educating you about history as well. Um, have you ever heard the expression that history is written by the winners, right? Well, it turns out it's true when it comes to the holiday of Thanksgiving. I imagine many of you would be surprised to learn the first Thanksgiving celebrations in America happened 59 miles from here. And most likely they served alligator, not turkey. It happened 57 years prior to the pilgrim's meal in Plymouth. So let me back up just a little bit and give you the history to set the stage to explain that. And I have to go all the way back to 1560. The Protestant Reformation was spreading through Europe and the Holy Roman Emperor, who was neither holy nor Roman, in fact, the Catholic kings and princes, and not least of all the Pope in Rome, did not stand still while the Reformation took place. And yet the Reformation took root among scholars and monks and priests, people who were actually reading the Bible and not listening to what someone was telling them in a church. And there were threats, there were heresy trials, there were burnings, there was counter-evangelism, and of course, they resorted to war to kill off this scourge of Protestantism. In France, where the king was paramount in the Roman church, the flames of Reformation spread too wildly and too intensely to be extinguished by these traditional means. And uh, hopefully, I'm going to preface what I'm about to say, I'm going to butcher some French names and some Indian names, despite having three years of the best French education Columbia High School had to offer. <laughs> that being said, General Caspar de Colonnais led the Protestant church in France, and under his leadership, many noblemen embraced the new, old faith. Again, reading the scriptures for themselves. And the text emanating from Frenchmen like John Calvin in Geneva and many others, the French Protestants were known as the Huguenots. And when the king sent armies against the Protestants, uh, de Coulinay would he, he led the defense of the church against the king's armies. And for the survival of the, the Protestant saints of the church, they, they literally had to fight for their lives. And when the wars died down a little while, uh, de Coulinay thoughts turned to missionary endeavors and spreading the gospel to the rest of the world. And Catholic nations like Spain and Portugal were sending missionaries to all the conquered people in South America. And so in 1562, the Huguenot explorers landed on Florida's northeast coast and traveled up the St. John's River into present-day Jacksonville. Two years later, on June 29, 1564, the French Protestants constructed one of the first European forts in what we now know today as the United States. And I'll put a picture, I think, of that 
Those of you who know Jacksonville a little bit, here's the Google Earth. That little cross is where that first fort was built. This year marks the 459th anniversary of Fort Caroline and the settlement that was there. Um, The French captain recorded in his diary a Thanksgiving feast on June 30th, 1564, which was celebrated with the local indigenous, again, please forgive me if you're a Native American, the Timucuan people. Um, And this next is a rendering of that event of them coming up to St. John's and meeting the Indians there. And this robust Huguenot colony got off to a great start. They brought families to ensure multi-generational survival and social stability. Uh, this wasn't just a group of invaders coming to a new land to invade it. They, they brought women and children so that they could, again, establish a foothold for the gospel here in this new land. And the French Protestants established a good relation with the local tribes because, again, in their eyes, all men were made in the image of God. And so they didn't look at these men as savages. They looked at these men as potential people to hear the gospel. And so they began to build relationships with them. Unlike the Spanish Catholics, who had a strong tendency to abuse and take advantage of the local natives and even enslave them in many cases. And although there were no Spanish settlements in Florida, Ponce de Leon, one of the earliest examples of manifesting, claimed all of Florida for Spain. Never been there. Don't have anything, but we're we're claiming that in the name of Spain. And so that, of course, set up a horrible conflict that was inevitable because when the Spanish king heard of the French settlement and a Protestant one at that it was already bad enough they were French but then they were Protestants not Catholics he sent the most violent hitman at his disposal listen to this guy's name Pedro Menendez doesn't that just sound like a hitman I mean it just it's like you read this and it's like this is a movie like And he led an expeditionary force to deal with these Protestants. The new Spanish governor established a base at St. Augustine and launched an attack north on foot against Fort Caroline. And he didn't know this, but at the time, half of the Huguenots were away. And so all that was really left there were a small guard and the families. And so he slaughtered them all. He enslaved the women that he found. Um, The remaining French Protestants that were out to sea were blown off course by a hurricane of all things and shipwrecked down below the coast of St. Augustine. And upon his arrival back to St. Augustine, Menendez learned about Rabot, the the leader of the French group there, that they had wrecked and that they had come ashore and were making their way back up the coast north Menendez made his way down the island and requested them to yield themselves to his mercy in order that he might do with them as he should be directed by the grace of God, right? And that's what they did. They brought the men across the inlet, ten at a time, 
hands tied behind him. And the chaplain accompanying Menendez, the Catholic priest, gave them a chance for survival. They said, deny your faith and become a Catholic. Most refused. They were then led up the beach a short distance out of the sight of everybody else and stabbed to death. 111 Frenchmen, French Protestants, were killed. Only 16 were spared. A couple professed being Catholic. There were some experienced sailors that the Catholics thought they could use. And surprisingly, four artists were saved because they needed them in St. Augustine to draw what they were finding in the New World. Pays to be an artist. Two weeks later, the other ship uh, was discovered that had also shipwrecked, and those survivors were making their way up. And again, Menendez makes his way down. And that time, they surrendered and met the same fate. 134 were killed. From that time, the inlet was called Matanzas, meaning river of blood or river of slaughters. The, the Matanzas River in Jacksonville, which if you've ever been there, is a great place to take your kids. It's like real shallow water. They can play in the beach. And I just, I had all these like beautiful pictures of this until I was studying the history. <laughs> it, it's literally, its name is literally consecrated by the blood of our martyrs. The, the early Protestant French, yes, but still believers who would not deny their faith, who would not deny God and swear allegiance to a man and the Pope, but instead went to their graves. And that's where the Matanzas River gets its name. And that ended the first Protestant attempt at settling in North America. Happy Thanksgiving. Now you've got a cheery story to tell this, this year at your Thanksgiving table. But, but why did these French Protestants give up their lives rather than become Catholics? I mean, their, their families were murdered. They were shipwrecked by a hurricane. They were probably running out of food. And all they had to deny, do is deny their Protestant faith. That's all they had to do, and they could have survived. But 245 French Protestant Christians refused to deny their faith. Why? Take a moment this morning and consider what you would have done in their situation. If you found yourself here trying to spread the gospel in a new land and being attacked for this very faith, the only reason they were being slaughtered was their faith. This morning I want to suggest to you the answer comes from this verse in 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Give thanks in all 
circumstances. These men and women gave their life for something they believed in. They, they believed in Jesus. They believed in the message that they were taking to the world. Think, think about the risk of sailing to a place you've never been. Like, I, I don't know if you've ever gotten the chance to like get in a boat and go like in the Big Bend area. It's, it's beautiful. And like, there's some of those areas I go into and, and I look at this and I, I try to think as if I'm one of these people. And I'm thinking, I'm not getting off the boat there. <laughs> I, I mean, that, that's a lot of the coast. <laughs> and, and it's way more developed now than it was then. And, and yet these people were risking everything for, the, for a place to worship freely. And to spread that good news of the gospel wherever they went. These are the kind of people who give thanks in all circumstances. The good circumstances and the bad circumstances. And this morning I want to focus on this verse as we enter into the Thanksgiving season. But if you notice on that verse, it starts with a lowercase letter indicating it's part of a larger sentence. Um, and so I want to back up, and if you will just bear with me, I want to briefly touch on the first two verses that precede it so that we can understand Paul's complete thought here. In verse 16, he says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. For context in this section, Paul was giving the church at Thessalonica instructions about social obligations in verses 12 through 15. And then here in, in this section in verse 16 through 18, he turns to habits that should characterize our Christian relationship with God. Like what that should look like. And he gives us kind of three marks that, that we should have in our lives. And those are seen in verse 16, 17, and 18. Namely, joy, prayer, and gratitude at all times in every situation joy prayer and gratitude this is this is something that should be happening always or continuously in our life no matter the circumstances we find ourselves in the first thing there is rejoice always I've said this before, but much of the book of the Philippians um, was written by Paul from prison is a commentary on this one verse in verse 16. Always rejoice. Philippians 4, for instance, uh, gives us an idea of Paul's mind in verse 4 when he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. The man's in prison. That's his circumstances. That, that's what's happening around him. And here he's saying, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. 
This is, this is the place that, that God wants us to be. He wants us to understand that our peace and our joy only come from God. They don't come from people. It doesn't come from our circumstances. There's no other source of our rejoicing and our joy in this life other than God. If we're looking for it somewhere else, we will be disappointed. Husbands, if you are looking for joy from your wife, I have bad news for you this morning. She is going to disappoint you if she hasn't already this morning. Wives, if you're looking for joy from your husband, you're in trouble. Because I know he's already messed it up this morning. Right? Like, we, we put these burdens on people that they can't bear. And they are crushed underneath them. And then we wonder why we have no joy. If we're seeking to get joy from anywhere else other than our relationship with God, we are going to be miserable. Constantly looking for the next fix, the next thing that will make us happy. Always, though, always being let down. The same is true with our circumstances. Our our circumstances in this life the, the, the job we have, the, the, the family we have, whatever it is we're defining as a good life, it's going to let you down. It, it's not going to live up to the weight that only God can bear. So please, if you're here this morning and you're looking to get your joy in life, if you're looking to be able to rejoice always from anything other than God, Please, stop this morning. Confess to God. Say, God, I'm looking for joy in all the wrong places. Instead, I need to be seeking it from you and you alone. And when you do, like he says in Philippians 4, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Do you believe this this morning? Do you, do you understand this? It's, it's my job. I know sometimes I probably sound like a broken record, but it's, it's my job to remind you and present this truth as much as possible. The, the, the apostles never encouraged believers to deny the adversity, the sadness, the grief that is in this life. We, we don't ignore that. We don't deny that. But all of the apostles recognize that in the midst of the most agonizing situation, the presence of God through his spirit can infuse the soul with hope and with a heart of joy. And that joy is rooted deeply in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it became one of the primary distinctives of early Christians. It's why a group of 300 Frenchmen and women would get on a boat and joyfully sail, not knowing where they're going. Man, can you imagine? Honey, are we there yet? Are, are, we, are we lost? Right? I mean, like, 
something had to be compelling them that was pretty amazing to deal with that for months at sea. It's it's not like today where we hop a plane and boom, we're there. This was a treacherous journey. One in which you think you're going for, you know, New Hampshire and you end up in Jacksonville. It's close, right? I mean, this is uncharted territory. You're literally at the mercy like these, a hurricane blew up. There's no radar. There's no cell phone going, hey, don't sail today. (laughs) Not a good day for sailing. No, you just sail off and then, oh, hey, there's a tornado or a hurricane. Well, there we go. Joy was not a characteristic of other religions when Paul was writing this either. The church was unique in its proclamation that joy was at the heart of its faith. The source of Christian joy is different. As one theologian put it, Christian joy rooted in the gospel is infused with hope and grows in the relationship with the Lord. The pessimism and lack of hope that generally characterized ancient society found its answer in the salvation God offered through Jesus Christ. So first we are to rejoice. And we rejoice because of the good news of the gospel that God sent his son Jesus so that we might be reconciled with him, so that we might now have a relationship with him. Not because of anything we've done, because of everything he's done. That that should bring us joy. Second, he says we should pray without ceasing in verse 17. And if you want a good example of what that looks like, go and read any of Paul's letters the opening chapters. He, he opens every one of them with a prayer. And prayer is not to be limited to some kind of prescribed hours. He, he was, Paul was constantly praying for a variety of churches and situations and people. This was a common element that we see modeled for him through him in the scriptures. And unlike pagan prayers, which aim to sway their deity into favoring what they wanted... Christian prayer began with a confidence in a God who was their father. A a father whose desire was good for his children, right? This again sets the Christian religion apart from so many other religions at the time. You, You would go to the deity to get what you wanted. You wanted a good harvest. You wanted whatever. Not sure what the deity wanted. But as a Christian, we go to a heavenly father who loves us, who sent his son to die for us so that we can come boldly before the throne of God asking and making our request known to him. This familial relationship, it's it's not the manipulation that was symbolized by making offerings and all these pagan rites. This familiar relationship was the foundation of Christian prayer. And this brings me to the verse I want to focus on this morning, verse 18. The verse I believe gave those early French Protestants the faith to die for what they believed in. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Giving thanks is an essential part of our relationship with God. In verse 18, the focus is on a daily thanksgiving of believers. This is a key element in our 
Christian worship. And and when I say Christian worship, I don't just mean 20 minutes of songs on Sunday morning. I mean, worship is what we do with every minute of our lives. We are worshiping something. Unfortunately, most of us are worshiping ourselves the majority of the time. When we're complaining, we're worshiping ourselves. When we're being thankful, we're worshiping God because we understand and we know we don't deserve any of this. Any grace we've been extended is a mercy from him. And it should allow us to be able to give thanks. Right? Like like, that it just is mind boggling how gracious God is to us. And here the call of thanksgiving in the midst of every situation it doesn't matter if it's good or if it's bad thanksgiving should characterize us as a christian this this should be a a trademark this should be something that people know us by if we are christians just as joy and prayer are constant in our lives thanksgiving should be a constant This should be our favorite holiday, but not the only day in which we give thanks, right? But but as a Christian, this, this really should be one of our favorite times of the year. The time when we come together and we just celebrate what we are thankful for. I'm so thankful myself. Our my small group got together last night and we had a little Thanksgiving celebration and we went around the table and we just We just shared what was happening in our lives spiritually that we were thankful for relationally, like repairs and relationships that were happening from this year, from last year. What what were we thankful for personally? What, What was just something good God had done for us? And I would encourage you this week as you go into this time of Thanksgiving with your family or with your small groups. Ask those same questions. Listen, hear what your brothers and sisters in Christ are thankful for. It, it encouraged me to listen as much as it did to share what I was thankful for. To see how God was moving in so many different people's lives. And I would encourage you as you come into this week and, and if you're here and you say, well, I don't have any family. Find, find some friends that are alone. Invite them over. You can cook alligator. It doesn't have to be a turkey. The the point is to be thankful and to share what you're thankful about. And when you do this, it's evidence of your Christian walk, your Christian life. Just like joy and prayer are evidences of your Christian life. Paul exhorts the believers to offer thanks to God in all circumstances and not simply when they become recipients of some good from God. Here's another question you may ask this this year at Thanksgiving. What are you thankful for that you hoped for that you didn't get? Sometimes we want things and God doesn't allow them to happen. And then a year or two goes by and we go, oh, thank you, Jesus. That would have ruined me. Right? That. That, that, that woman that I was dating, oh, Lord, that, that would have been the end of me. You saved me, Lord. Right? But at the time, oh, Lord, please, please let me have her. 
And the Lord's like, no, I'm saving you, son. You don't realize it, but I'm saving you, right? Maybe it's some job that you wanted and you're just like, oh, if if I just get that job. And then you talk to the guy who got the job and he's let go three months later looking for another job. And you're like, well, Lord, thank you for saving me from that. Sometimes the things we're most thankful for are the things the Lord doesn't allow us to have. But also when you and 10 of your friends are given the choice to deny your faith or be killed, even in those moments, we should be able to give thanks. And thankfully, at this point, we're far from that. But we never know when things will change. And we have to ask ourselves, and again, I know it's impossible to fully know, but what would I do? Would I go singing Amazing Grace to the execution? This exhortation is is not calling us, and I want to be clear here, It's not the same as calling the church to give thanks for everything that comes their way. As if we're some kind of Stoics who just believe that fate brought them what was destined to be their lot. That that philosophy was embraced. Um, it kind of embraced the idea, the notion of the universe was rational and it moved according to its good purposes apart from a holy, loving, sovereign God. Therefore, in the, in the Stoic mind, whatever happened was precisely what was supposed to happen. And this Stoic response was really a resignation in every situation that came their way. But, but the Christian approach is decidingly different. Since we do trust in a sovereign God who can turn any situation for our good, as Romans 8.28 says, even a bad one. Like We might not like the situation, but we're trusting a God who can take the bad situation and turn it into a good situation. You see the difference there? It's not just, resi- oh, well, this is what it's going to be. Might as well be miserable. No, it, it, even, in, even in the midst of a sinful world with sinful people making sinful choices, God can somehow take all of that because he loves us, because he cares about us, and use it for our good. That, that's a fundamental difference. One just leads to just resignation and misery, and one leads to joy. He can make us more than victorious in any hard time or any other circumstances that come our way. Paul closes out this trilogy of Christian characteristics by explaining that joy, prayer, and thanksgiving are what God has called us to. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. We should understand this last part as covering not just the last item, but all three items. God's call, his expressed will is is part of his gift They are blessed by being drawn into the sphere of doing his will 
in Christ Jesus. These French Huguenots went, right? Jesus says, go, preach, baptize, make disciples. They could die confidently knowing they were in his will because they were doing the work of the Great Commission. The reason for the apostle gives for this call to joy, prayer, and thanksgiving is the strongest and highest imaginable for a Christian. These are not optional, secondary characteristics of our Christian experience. Like These should embody every single one of us if we call ourselves a Christian. And if we don't embody these three things, we should really challenge ourselves. What do I believe? These are at the center of God's plan for us. The the church of Jesus Christ is called to rejoice, to pray, and to be thankful this morning. And I know it's easy to look at the world and wonder where is God's plan in all of the chaos around us. Just like I imagine those French Protestants did. While the first Protestant attempt at settling in North America was massacred by the Spanish Catholics, there would soon be another group of people who shared a common faith despite coming from different nations. A small group of over a hundred Protestants got on a ship. This was known as the Brownest Immigration. They would later become known as pilgrims. Most of the citizens of Plymouth were fleeing religious persecution and searching out a place to worship again in freedom. Unlike the first colony, which was primarily entrepreneurs and businessmen, that colony died out. The second one, again, like the first, went through a very brutal winter. Most of the colonists remained on the ships. They suffered and were exposed to the elements and got scurvy and outbreaks of various contagious diseases. Only a half of the people on the Mayflower made it through that winter and saw the first New England spring. In March, the remaining settlers moved ashore where they received one of the most astonishing things I could have ever imagined. Okay, you are you are a person coming from halfway around the world. You're an English-speaking person coming to a new land, and an Indian walks up to you and says hello in English. Now, I don't know what you what would qualify for something to give thanks for. But I feel like that would have. Several days later, he returned with another Native American, Guanto. He was a Native American who had been kidnapped by an English sea captain and sold into slavery. But he escaped to London and returned to his homeland miraculously on an exploratory expedition 
And Squanto taught the pilgrims who were weakened by malnutrition and illness how to grow corn, how to extract sap from maple trees, how to catch fish in the rivers, and how to avoid eating poisonous plants. Right? Like, how, how amazing is that? How miraculous is that? He also helped the settlers forge alliances with local uh, Native American tribes. And that, that first treaty that they had endured for more than 50 years. And it remains one of the sole examples of harmony between European colonists and Native Americans. And in November 1621, after the pilgrims' first corn harvest proved successful, Governor William Bradford organized a celebratory feast and invited a group of fledgling colonists and Native American allies. And this is what we remember as the first Thanksgiving. Although the pilgrims probably wouldn't have used that exact term, the festival lasted for three days. They they were really thankful. And I don't know if you know this or not, but Thanksgiving holidays, the, the Thanksgiving history of that holiday in North America is rooted in the English traditions of the Protestant Reformation. Days of Thanksgiving were typically in response to events that the Puritans viewed as special acts of providence. I I think an Indian walking up to you and speaking your language in a foreign land definitely qualifies as a special act of providence. right? Of all the places they could have landed to find this Indian who had taught another Native American how to speak English, These special blessings viewed as coming from God were called days of thanksgiving in Europe in the Protestant church. And they were observed through church services and other gatherings. So much of what we have is because of the faithfulness of those who have come before us. And we are so quick to forget history. We're so focused on today that that we forget all of the attempts that were made to give us the freedoms that we have. And so this morning, if you're not thankful for anything else, I hope you leave thankful for that. that. That men and women got on ships because of something they believed in. Sailed halfway around the world to spread the good news of the gospel So that ultimately, that Protestant faith that was persecuted was was literally tried to be burned out in Europe would survive. And all these years later, you would be sitting here in America, 59 miles from the first Thanksgiving, worshiping the true and living God. We have so much to be thankful for. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the rich heritage we have that so many times we take for granted, Lord. And God, this this just scratches the surface of just 
a, a brief picture of how many martyrs died so that we could stand here and proclaim the gospel this morning. Lord, we want to be thankful for them. That no matter the circumstances, they rejoiced, they prayed, and they were thankful. Lord, may their example this morning inspire us to follow the words in 1 Thessalonians, that that we would rejoice, that we would be in prayer constantly, Lord, and that we would be thankful. And Lord, we are most thankful for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. Without him, we would have no hope, but because of him, we have nothing but hope. Father, thank you for his martyrdom, his blood that was shed for us once and for all so that we might be reconciled back to you. And Lord, if anybody is here this morning and they do not know you, they have not put their faith and trust in you, they do not have this joy that I've been talking about today or this thankfulness. Lord, I pray that today would be the day that they would give their life to you. But Father, also for us who maybe have forgotten this morning, of all the sacrifices that make our worship of you possible. Lord, I pray you would help us this week to be reminded of that. And God, we would take that thankfulness into our family gatherings, into our gatherings with our friends and our coworkers, and we would reclaim this, this Protestant holiday for what it was really about, which was celebrating your divine providence. And if nothing else, Lord, the divine providence of being born in a country where we are free to worship you and to learn about you. But God, we have so many other things to be thankful for. God, I pray that you would bless our times together with our families. That you would use us as missionaries going to our families, to our friends, to our coworkers. Sharing the good news of the gospel through our thankfulness, Lord. And that people would see something different about us. And want to know more about you. Lord, that is our prayer this morning. And I ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.